0: This morning, we're continuing our series uh, in the book of John, uh, entitled 1 to 12. And uh, you can open up your Bibles to uh, John chapter 3 or your Pew Bible as page 887. I also want to encourage you, as, as was noted in our video announcements, that uh, this Tuesday we're kicking off our uh, monthly uh, prayer and worship night. I invite you to come. Uh, I would also invite you, if you're saying, man, our small group uh, meets our life group meets that night and we can't, we can't come, actually you can come, just bring your whole life group. Okay, just bring them all for a great evening of worship and prayer as uh, we've talked about we want Willingdon to be a house of prayer. And of course, that's not just a slogan, that's something we engage in regularly uh, in all of our gatherings whenever we meet as teams, uh, but also in our services and Tuesday night is a night where we can spend more time doing that. It'll be in the chapel at 7 o'clock. This morning as we jump back into the book of John, uh, I love this text, these 21 verses in John, and the main character in this text, because he's asking questions, he's curious about, uh, about Jesus, about faith, about all things kind of connected to God. And I was thinking about that. I think when people walk into church, we often walk in with questions, I think that's particularly true when we walk into church for the first time. And I was trying to put myself in that place of walking through our doors here at Willingdon uh, for the first time. And coming into a building where you see this, this big, could be an imposing building, and you wonder, what's on the other side of the door? Will someone greet me? Will I find my way around? What will they say to me? How will they treat me? What will I learn? What will the service be like? Will they ask something of me? Will I have to do something? I think we come in with all kinds of questions. I had a small taste of this uh, when I was in grad school. For one semester, I was at a Lutheran seminary, so I went to the Lutheran uh, chapel there. And uh, in the Lutheran church, they have sets of readings that they follow every week, which I didn't know. But I saw people sitting down, and they pull out their, the Pew Bible, and it's got different color bookmarks, and they're immediately going to different places uh, in, uh, in their Bibles, because they read an Old Testament verse, they read a Psalm, and they read a New Testament verse. But there's also a way that they read it throughout the service. And I didn't know what that way was. Because I grew up in a church that kind of did services the way we do them here. And so they all knew when to stand up and when to sit down. And I was always half a beat behind. Right, So everyone's standing, I'm sitting. Oh, i got to stand. And then everyone sits down and I'm the one who's standing there. Feeling like you just volunteered for something but you didn't. Right, that feeling. And what that does when you're the one who's standing and everyone else is sitting. Right, what does that say? New guy. Oh, that's the new guy. Okay, we knew, we've got to go greet him later on. A uh, new guy. And I was thinking about that. Okay, how do people feel when they walk in? They have questions. I mean, that's why we have our great new Welcome Center, to try and help answer your questions. And if you have some, love to love for you to go there later on, after the service. But also, if we are religious people, we have questions. If you've never been to church before, or not never been to this church, you may have questions. If you come from a different faith, you may have questions. Or if you're just coming to this church for the first time, you wonder, well, just like other ones I've been to. I think we also have questions like, will I get answers to my questions here? How will people treat me when I come here? Will I find community here? Will I learn about Jesus here? As people, we have lots of questions. Well, the main character in today's text is someone who has questions. That's why he's come to Jesus. Now, in this case, he's he's a religious person who has questions. In our Willingdon language, he's an explorer. He's in that phase of his discipleship pathway. If you wonder what that is, pick up one of these booklets out in the hallway that talk about the pathway and how we'd love to walk with you so you can answer your questions and walk in community with you. So as a religious explorer, he's someone who knows about God, but he doesn't really know much about Jesus. He's someone who knows a lot about religion, but not Jesus. Now, people of various religious backgrounds could be religious explorers. I mean, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but not God. Many Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened teacher. Many atheists, which I would call a religion... Because it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist, actually. Many atheists believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. So we have a religious explorer. We pick up the story in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So we're told who he is. His name is Nicodemus. He's a group of the Pharisees. So this is a religious ruling class. Uh, We also... Uh, know that because of that, he was a teacher, he would have been a rabbi. We also know that in history, he would have been very well educated, as well educated as you can be in a religious education system of that day. He would have memorized what we in our Bible call the Old Testament. That's part of his upbringing and part of his training. He memorized, he doesn't just know it well, he memorized it. He was deemed at the top of his class, otherwise he wouldn't be part of the Pharisees. So he would have had students that he was teaching as well. He was very religious. He was very, and now he was a ruler as well. So he had leadership uh, responsibilities. Uh, He knew who he was in terms of that leadership. He had standing in the community. So if you're a religious person today, but you're on a search, you want to know who Jesus is and the implications of Jesus and relationship with him for your life. You're like Nicodemus. You're a religious explorer. Now, I think he was also looking for more. Something had stirred in him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. Now, Nicodemus, we assume, well, we know he had, he had heard some of Jesus' teaching. He probably had witnessed Jesus cleansing the temple when he turned over all the money changers tables that we heard about last week. He had probably seen that. He had maybe observed some miracles that Jesus has done, had done. Perhaps he had heard the stories of how Jesus had turned water to wine at the wedding of Cana that we heard about a few weeks ago. And so there was something that struck a chord a little deeper in Nicodemus' heart and mind. At the end of chapter 2, it talks about a group of people who believed in Jesus, but it said Jesus did not trust his heart to them. Like, they kind of believed, they sort of believed. That's who they were. But I think Nicodemus wanted something more. So I don't know why you are here today. I'm not sure if you're here because you've come here for 30 years. And this is your faith community and you follow Jesus and participation in this community. If you're new and you're visiting from out of town. If you're here and you're a religious explorer. Or like a gal, a lady I talked to the other day about a month, month and a half ago. uh, She had uh, been curious kind of about Willingdon. I think she had phoned here a few times to talk to different pastors. But had never come here. And she walked up to me after the service and said, I really didn't want to be here today. But obviously, you're here. And she said, I hoped you were closed. Okay, this was a Saturday night. I hoped you were closed when I, but I, she still drove by. And she said, I saw the parking lot full of vehicles. And I thought, shoot, you're open. I have to go in. And I'm like, did someone make you go in? Like, were our parking attendants out there saying you have to go in? She said, no, the Lord just told me I had to be here. Now, she had a story of pain in her background and uh, had been part of a cult at one time that had abused the Word of God to manipulate people. So there was this simultaneous fear and pull that was happening. The Spirit of God. She was curious. She goes, I know there's hope and there's healing in God. But it's also a frightening thing. And Nicodemus comes in that place, this religious leader, This well-educated person, the person of standing, who knows all about God. But he comes at night. Why does he come at night? I think he comes at night because he's a Pharisee. He's standing in the Jewish community. And we know that that community, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, saw Jesus as the enemy. They saw someone who was a threat. Someone who was a liar. Someone who was misleading people in their opinion. So if he went to Jesus by day to say, I have questions... That would have not gone well with the other leaders. As I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, there could be people like that here. People who are feeling pulled by Jesus to say, man, I want to find out more. But perhaps your family members or friends are telling you to stay away. They're telling you, don't go there. Don't follow Jesus. But there's something that is compelling. Something that is drawing you in. Like the lady who had hoped we were closed on Saturday night and was both worried and overjoyed that we were open because we feel that tension and so Nicodemus comes he's curious and i'll just let you know that as a church we don't care how you got here or why you're here we're very glad you're here here's a simple saying you can remember we don't care where you're coming from we care where you're going we all have a story It doesn't matter to us, just like it doesn't matter to God what that story is, how difficult it is, or what a struggle it's been, or maybe how easy it's perhaps been, but you're disillusioned, and so you're wondering who Jesus is. It doesn't matter to us what you've done, or what's happened to you. What we're interested in, and what we want to join you in, is walking towards Christ and walking in relationship with him. And just like Jesus accepted this religious person, who knew all the rules, who was part of a class that was opposed to Jesus. He wants to engage him, and he wants to engage you. So Nicodemus begins to speak to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Rabbi is a term of respect. We would translate it as teacher. But he's doing that respectfully, and think about this. Nicodemus in their education system would be more educated than Jesus. Okay? Nicodemus had all the degrees, he had the position, he had the stature of the in the religious world. Jesus did not have that. So Nicodemus would have been at the top of his class because it's only if you're at the top of your class that you become a rabbi. Jesus had been a carpenter. If you were in the trades, that meant you weren't at the top of your class and didn't become a rabbi, you became a tradesperson, a fisher, a fisherman, a, a carpenter, something like that. So Nicodemus actually did not need to call Jesus rabbi. But he was being respectful. Why? We, can, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. So here is someone who is completely outside of their religious system, doing things that Nicodemus says, well, they can only be from God because I have no other way of explaining how you teach, what you say, and what you do even though you're not a rabbi. So Nicodemus is being respectful. Now, I, I love how Jesus answers, even though it's a bit of counter, bit of counter it's counterintuitive. Now, Jesus doesn't say like we do at greeting, oh, good to see you, glad to meet you. What's your name? Right, there's no, there's no interplay like that. Oh, do you have any questions I could answer? Uh, it's like Jesus is into bad customer service. Because <laughs> right? what does he do? He doesn't, there's no greeting, no interchange. He simply says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, excuse me? So Jesus, I think, because of the spirit of God in him, knows what Nicodemus's question is, what the longing of his heart is. Jesus knows what he is wondering. And he answers truthfully, and cuts right to the point. But Nicodemus is completely confused. Right? Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus jumps in at us and answers Nicodemus' heart's cry on this spiritual level. And Nicodemus is thinking on this physical human level. Right? They completely miss each other. Or at least it appears that way in the beginning of the conversation. Nicodemus is probably middle aged at least and he says how am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb Jesus what you're saying makes no sense it's a physical impossibility Jesus shows the difference between how we think and how he thinks right to be born again this makes no sense but Jesus is not deterred by Nicodemus's Nicodemus' protest he just continues to press in because he knows, I think, the cry of Nicodemus' heart. Just like he knows the cry of your heart. If you're here looking for answers, if you're here looking for hope, God knows that. And he wants to speak into that. Not in a superficial way. Why? Because Jesus gives us the answers we need, not the answers we want. Jesus gives us the answers we need, not the answers we want. Why? Because he is concerned with what is best for us, not our comfort. He is concerned what is best for us. Not what is easiest, not what is most comfortable. He wants us to embrace truth and what is best for us. So he gives us the answers we need, not the answers we want. And he continues on in verse 5 when it says, Jesus answered, Truly, true, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In the middle of that, you have a famous statement that makes many people uncomfortable. Probably the, one of the best known, verse, uh, best known statements uh, in Christianity. You must be born again. A number of years ago, I was listening to a radio talk show host, and uh, he had gone on a uh, humanitarian trip with Samaritan's Purse to deliver shoe boxes uh, somewhere in the world. So, discussing that trip, so I really liked that trip. It was really good. I, you know, I really enjoy this this uh, these efforts and what people are doing with these shoe boxes. I think it's so important. And then it's interesting. He says, "Well, I am a Christian, but I'm not the born again kind." And I thought that 's interesting, so what other kind is there? And I started looking through the Bible unborn again christian right you 're going to look a long time for that one right the bible doesn 't talk about any other kind of Christian other than born again. Now I know that that phrase has stigma to it, and I was thinking about that as you know we 're renovating a condo uh, that we 're going to move into just up the hill here and uh, so uh, when we started the renovation, we went to a chocolate place and, and we got these chocolates and uh, they're really cute because they're in the shape of a workman leaning over sawing something, right? So we went to our neighbors, knocked on the door and said, hi, we're Willie and Gwen, we're moving in, but we're starting with the renovation, we're sorry, can we buy you off with chocolates? Uh, basically, you know, we just apologized, said, I know it's going to be noisy and they were all very gracious and, and very nice to us. Now I thought about that and go, okay, say we move in sometime in November and we go back again and say, hey, reno's done. You know, hi, we're Willie and Gwen, we're born again. And we wonder what the response would be. Some people would, you know, be awkwardly silent and close the door. Probably. Others would say, oh great, come on in. Well, you know something about them then. Others perhaps would be hostile, because that is a loaded phrase. And yet there is a truth in that phrase that we need to understand. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, spiritual questions need spiritual answers, not human answers. And to enter the kingdom of God, we don't need to be better people. We need to be new people. And he says, he's talking spiritually. You have to be born again. You don't have to be born better. You don't have to go on a self-improvement course. You don't have to go to Dale Carnegie and learn how to speak better. You don't have to become more moralistic or more educated. He says, it's not those things. None of those things work. You need to be born again. Because it's only being born again... That deals with your sin, that removes your shame, that conquers your fear, because it's done by Jesus on the cross. So verse 5, he starts unpacking this further. He says, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. And he's not talking about baptism. What he's talking about is the historic references to being washed clean. To being washed in water. Water, it's, it's repentance. It's that washing. To be made new. That's the imagery he's pointing to. In verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. As flesh, we can only make flesh, right? As people, we can only create human things. Can we do good things? Absolutely. We cannot create spiritually out of human effort. It's a bit like if my wife and I, you know, there's only certain things we can create. We're both German, Dutch, blonde people. What do you think we're going to create? It's not going to be dark-skinned, black-haired children. We create what we can create. That's how that works. He says, if we're human, we can only create human things. We can't create spiritual things. We can be spiritual people because God made us that way. We were made in his image. But we can't create our own regeneration. We can't create our own new life. That's impossible for us to do that. When I became a Christ follower, I was 18 years old. I was in a theater of some sort uh, that I vaguely remember uh, in the town of Estes Park, Colorado. I don't remember the speaker's name. Uh, I don't remember what he said, other than at the end of the evening, he said, "If you want to be a new person, if you want to if you want to be born again, stand up and give your life to Jesus, put your faith in Him." And I stood up that day. Now the next day, I was still five foot eleven and a half. I still couldn't jump very high, right? Like I still had the same intellect. But I was a new person. So I was changed completely on the in, from the inside out. But on the outside I still looked pretty much the same. But because the change on the inside was so radical. It's the greatest transformation you will ever experience. Is when you put your belief in Jesus Christ. That's the reality. Now there is one caveat. One footnote to this. And I don't know a good English word for this other than the old english word countenance countenance is like your i mean nowadays people would talk about your aura it's it's what you give off it's it's what people sense about you and if you're a christ follower i would i would be willing to bet you had this experience you walk into a room you don't know anyone you meet someone you look at them and you go i think they're a christ follower how'd you know it's their countenance it's something that oozes out of them See, when you become a Christ follower, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, God oozes out of you. Not because you know so much. Not because you do everything right. But it's the presence of God. It's the presence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you can see that on people. It's their countenance. So that does change. Even though your features stay the same, your countenance changes quite often. And Jesus is telling us that human righteousness is not enough. He's telling Nicodemus that his Jewish credentials are not enough. He's saying you can't earn spiritual transformation through human effort or human intellect. There's no way that we can do it. Why? Because flesh creates flesh. And spirit creates spirit. So Jesus, Nicodemus is still confused. Verse 9 he says to Jesus, How can these things be? His head is spinning. How is this possible? You're telling me to do something, but I cannot do it by my human effort or my intellect or everything that I've been told I could do and should do since I was a little boy. And Jesus, I have done my best to do that. I have followed every rule, every ritual. I've done all the studying. I've applied myself. Jesus, I've done it all. Jesus says to him in verse 10, you are, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now at first glance, you read that and you say, boy, he's being a little hard on Nicodemus. You know, Nick, aren't you a teacher? Like, don't you get it? You know, we've told you about these things, but you don't believe us, what he goes on to say. But then Jesus is making allusions. He's connecting dots to things that Nicodemus would have learned as a a young man, as a student, and that he would have taught as a teacher. So he's saying, no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Well, the Son of Man is a title for the Messiah, which is Jesus. Nicodemus knows that title. He knows that story. And then he starts talking about what can seem like an obscure text to us. Uh, it comes out of Numbers 21 where he says, And as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Numbers 21 is a story of the people of Israel are being disobedient and uh, again. And, and God sends uh, some serpents, some vipers to come. Uh, out of because of their disobedience it 's punishment for their disobedience, and people are saying, "Moses, you have to do something about this." So Moses goes to God and God says, "Make this bronze serpent, and as the people put faith in me as they look at that, I will kill them from their bites and stop uh, the, the death that 's happening from these vipers. I will stop that. And so when Jesus says, "Just like that bronze serpent was lifted up, so the Son of man being Jesus, needs to be lifted up, which is the cross, and he will be glorified he says, Nicodemus, that's how this will happen. And Nicodemus is is doing the mental gymnastics going back to Numbers 21, which he knows by memory. He also knows what happens when you read in the book of 1 Kings, how that bronze serpent had to be destroyed because the people didn't look to God, they actually looked to the serpent, to this bronze idol. They missed the point that that was only a symbol and it was God who did the healing. So it had to be destroyed. And now... Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, one will be lifted up and it's me. And it's through me being lifted up. Just like that servant was lifted up that there will be healing for all people. That new life will happen. And then there's allusions in this passage to Ezekiel 36. Where God speaks of the one and coming day. Manifesting his great holiness among the people. Where God said, I will come and I will cleanse you with water. I will wash your filthiness from you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. And I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel knows these passages and Jesus is showing him there's a storyline here because he's so confused going I can't climb back into my mother's womb what are you talking about? Nicodemus your humanity can only create more humanity you can become a better person but you can't become born again and better actually isn't good enough better is not born again so even though he's reminding him of these things he's taking him to a new place Because it's only Jesus who was sent by the Father, who died on the cross, was lifted up like the serpent, who paid the price for our sin, who removed our shame, who conquers fear and death, who can make being born again possible. That's the great news that reoriented Nicodemus' thinking. And I think in the goodness and the greatness and the graciousness of God, we come to verse 16 of of John chapter 3, which is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. Not God was so mad at the world. Not not God so condemned the world. God so loved the world. This creation that he created that had rejected him. That was now living in its humanity and could never do anything to initiate spiritual regeneration. He says God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus. The words that reflect the heart of God. Because friends, the heart of God is to give. The heart of God is to give. The love of God is to give. Some of you come with an impression that that God is overbearing. Or that you've had a bad human father, so you think of God the Father that way. Friends, here's the truth about God. For God loved the world so much that he gave. That which was most precious to him. His son. Why? So that he could save humanity that he created that had rejected him repeatedly. The heart of God is to give. Did he give so that we could understand which rules to follow? No. He gave because he loves. Did he give because he had a need to give? No. He gave because he loves. Did he give out of obligation? No. Did he give out of some need to try and manipulate us? No. He gave because he is love, not just that he loves, he is the embodiment of love. And what is our part in this story? The second half of that verse. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Believe what? That Jesus paid the price for our sins, removes our shame, conquered death through his resurrection, that there is no condemnation when we believe believe in Jesus, that we do not need to stay spiritually dead. So what am I talking about? Remember the, the, the title of this message is Jesus did not come to make bad people good. When you are born into this world, you are born physically alive, spiritually dead. That's the reality. We inherit the death from, from the very beginning of time, from Adam and Eve, when they rejected God and were kicked out of the garden. Spiritual death happened, it gets handed down from generation to generation to generation. There is no way that you can create spiritual life yourself because flesh begets flesh. So new life is possible because of God's initiating, initiating work and in sending his son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave. So that everyone who believes. So God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Sending his son. But he will not do for us what we must do for ourselves. Which is believe. He won't do that for us. He can't do that for us. That is our natural response. And that's the amazing good news. And he goes on. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So this is how this often I think plays out. Because I've been asked this question many times over the last 30 years. Why does God send people to hell? Perhaps you've been asked that question. Why does God send people to hell? Here's my simple answer. He doesn't. He doesn't. We do. How do we do that? If you're born physically alive and spiritually dead, that means that the trajectory you're on as a spiritually dead person actually is a trajectory towards a Christless eternity. It's a trajectory towards hell. God doesn't have to send you there if you do not believe on him. You're already going there. It's already happened in that sense. Because that's the trajectory we're on when we're born. Life without Christ. Because we're born spiritually dead. So then when Jesus came onto the scene. And he's saying. Here's a real simple analogy. If you're born at the beginning of a highway. The other end of the highway. At the end of life. Is Christless eternity. That's the highway you're born on. Highway One." Whether it's rush hour or not, it's going the same way. So whether you're crawling or going fast, it's going the same way. It's like Jesus is at the off-ramp saying, hey, God sent me because he loves you so much. And so I have built the bridge for you to get off this road to give you spiritual life. All you need to do is believe in me. Repent of your sin. Receive new life. Live in the power of the Spirit. I've done for you what you cannot do for yourself. But you still have to choose the off-ramp. You still have to believe. Friends, this isn't difficult to understand. It's just we have to choose. We have to believe. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. So if you're bad, you can get better. If you're really good, you can still get more better. Right? Like you can, to degrees of goodness, you can increase that. But the reality is no matter how good you are, you're still dead. There, there is no place where your goodness crosses a line. Go, oh, now you're alive. You did it yourself. You bought it, you earned it, you were smart enough. Like, it doesn't happen. Dead is dead, and there are no degrees of dead. You're not kind of dead, sort of dead, a little bit dead, right? Dead is dead. When I was a little kid, I used to try, I was a little, you know, eight years old or something, I tried to imagine, what's it like to be dead? I'd lie there in bed. Okay, I'm dead. And I still feel alive. Like, I, you know, I just thought, what's dead? I was trying to imagine this thing that I couldn't, we can't imagine But it's life without Christ. That's spiritual deadness. And every person in this room, no exceptions, was born dead. None of you were born half dead. None of you were born spiritually alive. All of us started the same place, dead. And perhaps some of you still are. That's not a judgment statement. That is a spiritual reality. When people say, well, that sounds awfully politically incorrect. I say, well, the Bible tells me I need to be born again which means I was dead. So actually it's the best thing for me to find out that I'm dead because then I find out my options. So it's actually an act of grace. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the beauty of what God has done. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You we were spiritually dead, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were still dead in transgressions, even while we were still there. God didn't wait for us to show effort or energy. He just said, "I'm taking initiative." And it is by grace you have been sent, been saved. Without Jesus, we're spiritually dead, not alive. That's why it makes what makes this passage so incredibly relevant for every one of us. So. If you're like my wife who became a Christ follower at a very young age. She was, I think, five years old. Uh, and then just lived that life ever uh, continually. Or if you're like myself, I was 18 years old. So there was a bigger change in my behavior that I did before versus after. A little more observable. Or whether you're 50 or 60 or 90, it doesn't matter. All of us are dead in the same way. All of us receive God's goodness and grace the same way. Remember, it's Jesus he didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And out of that place, then we live in God's freedom. When we live in His light, we live in God's freedom. When we live in His light, because that because it's our aliveness that allows us to live in His light and gives us the freedom to do that. When we live apart from Jesus, we struggle with light. How do we know that? Look at our society. When do crimes happen? Generally, in the dark. We like to do everything in the dark or our form of darkness is secrecy. Right? We do it in secret. We don't want people to know. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. Because we understand our selfishness but we don't know what to do with it. When did pornography take off like, in uh, severity as an addiction? As soon as with the invention of the internet. Privacy. Secrecy. Smartphone. I can watch it there. Tablet. I can watch it there. As a side note, there's actually someone who can always find out where you were on the internet. It's not really secret. But we think it is. And so it takes off. And God says, no, you can actually live in the light. You can walk in the light because there's freedom in the light. See, because when your sin comes to light and you deal with it by repentance, God says, it's gone. It's wiped out. God brings sin up in your life not because he wants to condemn you, as Jesus said in verse 17, it's, be, it's called conviction. And conviction is there for the purpose of removing the pain of that sin from your life because that's what he did. And when you become a Christ follower, when you say, Jesus, come and I, and I give me forgiveness for my sin, remove my shame, conquer my fear, he says, you are in my family. I adopted you into my family because of the work of my son. You are my daughter whom I love. You are my son whom I love. I welcome you into my presence Freely. Please walk in. The picture in my head is always like, I'm not sure why this is my picture, but this is my picture of God the Father. You see, I walk in and I can burst in through the doors of his throne room in heaven. And he stands there with open arms like my grandfather and just scoops me up. He says, You are my son whom I love. And every time the evil one wants to say in the back of your mind, Yeah, but what about that thing that I did? What about that thought? What about that sin? What about that act? He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember. My son took care of that. Once you were dead, now you're alive. You're a new creation. And I love you. My son and my daughter. And then he says in verse 20, uh, in verse 20, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Friends, if you're in darkness, there is freedom in light. Because God does not expose your sin to embarrass you. He exposes your sin to free you. He wants to free you. And then in verse 21 it says, But whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that this that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, it is God who has done this amazing thing and that as we walk in the light, we do good things. Do we become better people? Sure we do. Why? Because we want to give back to what God has given to us. Because we want to reflect his goodness to the world and we want to point people to him and say, isn't God good? When I was 18, God forgave my sin. Have I made mistakes since then? Absolutely. And then he, he points to out. He says, hey, Willie. I think we should deal with that. And, I, and initially I'll say, well, I'm not such, like it wasn't that bad, like, you know, just relax. And I go, Willie, you know what's best for you. I love you. You know I love you. Yeah, you're right, Father. You're right. I'm sorry. Here you go. And he goes, done, taken care of. Jesus took care of it. You're my son whom I love. I didn't want anything between us. We're good to go. Friends, that's God's invitation to you this morning. Let's stand for closing prayer. If you've never made that decision to be born again, to believe in the work of Christ, that he's paid for your sin on the cross, he's removed your shame, he's conquered fear through his death and resurrection, I would invite you to pray with me. And uh, after you've done that, when the service ends, I'd invite you to go to our prayer center. There's some banners there that said, I said yes. It's referring to yes to Jesus. Those people would love to pray with you further or you can come and talk to me as well. You can fill out a connect card that says, I I said yes to Jesus, and people will call you this week and follow up with you and give you some resources as to how to move forward. And after that prayer, I'd like to pray for the rest of us. So pray with me if you want to believe, put your faith in Christ today. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, I thank you for everyone here who has said yes to you in the past. And Father, I want to pray for those who have said yes but perhaps are struggling. Perhaps have believed the lies of the enemy that wants to keep parts of their life in darkness. Lord, I pray even now they would just take that part of their life and say, Jesus, here it is. Please forgive me. Please renew me. Thank you for your finished work on the cross that you've, that you've already given me new life. But Lord, I want to live in freedom. I want to live in light. And I give this area of my life to you. And Father, as we go into this week, verse 21 of this passage talked about how the things that we do give testimony to your goodness and your grace. And so, Father, I pray that as we follow your leading into this week, into our places of work, of school, our friendships, our our communities, Lord, that our lives, that our countenance would point people to you and that we would give you glory for all the good things you do in us, around us, and through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.